and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we've got a very special sponsored episode. Hey! Many thanks to Amanda for her support of The Dirt, for her exquisite taste in podcasts, and her even more exquisite taste in episode topics. Ladies and germs, we present to you the poop episode. Everybody poops, Amber. We all do it. And we've all done it since we evolved a gastrointestinal tract. But where does this most basic of human byproducts figure into the archaeological record? And what ahem, mark has it left on human history? All right. Well, let's give a, let's give our listeners a brief history of the study of poo. You didn't know you were getting this this week, did you, everybody? Mm. <laughs> um, first of all, where's all this poo coming from? Well, we talked about butts last week, so that's <laughs> set that aside. Um, and and also a point of information: we will be talking about coprolites, poo stones. That's um, what that <laughs> word right. means. Literal translation, yeah, indeed. Um, so we'll be talking about coprolites. Not everything that passes through our digestive system is destroyed, as you may have noticed in your years of living. Um, now, not all of that surviving material is recognizable, but some of it is quite recognizable. Um, so this material is generally the best indicator archaeologists can use to determine ancient diets, as no other part of the archaeological record is as direct an indicator. Um, and a lot of coprolite studies are um, the coprolites of dinosaurs. So mm -hmm. you know, because I don't know if there just was, I mean, their poos were definitely bigger. So that might have something to do with it. But, I mean, the big ones, but there were little baby, like, not baby, but I mean, they, small dinosaurs. Well, the big ones were right? babies once, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they well, were, right, I, I don't know. This is not a podcast about dinosaurs <laughs> or their poop. <laughs> this is strictly about human poo. Um, or is it? How do we get the poo into the archaeological record, back out of the archaeological record, and into our studies? Well... The process that preserves feces in such a way that they can be analyzed later is called the Maillard reaction, which uh -huh. I originally read as the Mallard reaction, which I would think <laughs> is quack. Uh, uh, but no, it is a French duck. <laughs> Mais non. Uh, so tell me about the Maillard reaction. Quack. Uh, <laughs> uh, le quack. <laughs> No, so the Maillard reaction is something that we all know and enjoy, and not just when it has to do with poop. So it is a chemical reaction between an amino acid and a reducing sugar, usually requiring the addition of heat. And this is a process that creates hundreds of different flavor compounds. And it is the reaction that makes, for example, toast so delicious. When your toast gets brown in the toaster, that is a Maillard reaction. This is not to be confused with caramelization, which occurs with sugars. Um, Maillard reaction is, again, amino acid and sugar. And so, for example, lots of different colors and flavors in the foods that we enjoy. So caramel made from milk and sugar. Um, like I said, toast. The color of beer, chocolate, coffee, and maple syrup. Um, self-tanning products. You're basically when you when you slather that on, you're you're toasting yourself. Uh, the flavor of roasted meat is a Maillard reaction. So lots of these uh, different things occur in our diet, and those things also the the amino acids and the sugars also pass through our diet. So they are in 
the fecal matter. And so those reactions also serve to protect the coprolite. And that's one of the reasons why in the correct environments, a coprolite can fossilize. So it's literally sugar-coated. Wow. Yeah. So the reaction creates a sugar casing, basically, that preserves the turd from the elements. And then um, to extract and then analyze what uh, that feces is, is composed of, researchers generally have to freeze the sample and then grind it up into powder for analysis. Okay. Well, and that analysis itself is um, relatively new. Um, it has a, a pretty short history compared to other archaeological methods and materials. Um, so the, found, the father of coprolite studies is a Dr. Eric Callen, um, who pioneered the subject in the late 50s to mid-60s. And his early papers used coprolite analysis to investigate early Mexican diets. And uh, it was published in the Prehistory of the Teotihuacan Valley, Environment and Subsistence. Um, despite his work showing promise, archaeological coprolite studies remained a niche topic. Um, <laughs> but why? I know. Um, with uh, a very few other researchers becoming involved. Um, however, um, Callan died suddenly in 1970. But his work was picked up by Vaughn Bryant at Texas A&M University. You might say Callan's number two. <sighs> I'm not sorry. Coprolite analysis gradually became a topic of serious study. Uh, today, coprolite analysis in archaeology has increased exponentially. Uh, I don't know if that's a mathematically sound assertion, but it has provided important evidence concerning the evolution of human health and diet. Um, it seems to be focused in the Americas, but there are um, case studies from other parts of the world. Yes, there are. And here is one of them. Really, really old one. Um, predictably, it's a Neanderthal one, because of course I'm going to talk about Neanderthal poop. So this is um, talking about fecal biomarkers, which are compounds that you find that show that the human body was processing certain types of foods. So to back it up, there are the oldest fecal fossils that we know about are about 50,000 years old and suggest, interestingly, that Neanderthals, we've talked about uh, eating a pretty meat heavy diet, uh, actually might have supplemented that with plenty of vegetables or at least, you know, plant matter. So Neanderthals disappeared from Western Europe around 30,000 years ago, which is to say that fossil evidence of them disappears. We don't see that anymore, but we know that their DNA lives on. And that's around the time that modern humans arrived in Western Europe. Neanderthal fecal samples, uh, as reported in the journal PLOS One in 2014, suggest that in at least in southern Spain, Neanderthals were eating things like berries and nuts and other uh plant foods. So these oldest poo samples turned up at the site of El Salt, which is a collection of ancient hearths in southern Spain. And the researchers were originally there investigating those hearths for chemical traces of fats from cooked meats. So looking for, um, you know, if you're cooking a, a roast over a fire, that fat's going to drip down and it actually can carbonize and that preserves it. Um, but amid the hearths, they unexpectedly found some fossil feces or coprolites in a layer dated to around 50,000 years ago. This research was written up by, among other people, an MIT student named Inara Sistiaga, who I actually know, because she um, was affiliated with someone that I worked with at Boston University. And she led the study on these uh, paleofeces. 
and she says that they they think that the feces were deposited after people stopped using the fire pit. So like someone wasn't toasting their buns trying to have a poo. So in order to figure out what was going on in the Neanderthal diet, the lab sampled the feces by pulverizing the sample and looking for spectroscopic identification of their chemistry. So we've talked about spectroscopy before, but it's basically putting a substance through a uh, a machine that detects the different uh, ways that light bounces off materials and gives you a chemical readout. In particular, the chemicals that the researchers were looking for were compounds created when bacteria help digest meat and plants. So the results identified four fats associated with meat, but two cholesterol-related compounds also turned up that are an unambiguous fingerprint of plants. This study was the first to provide direct chemical analysis that Neanderthals ate vegetables, although there was another researcher, um, Amanda Henry, who was interviewed about this study and made an excellent point that it would be very reassuring to be able to test this sample to make sure it wasn't bear poop or something like that, because bears also can be omnivorous and, and maybe they would it would give a, a false positive. And I didn't look into it to see if they had actually followed through and done this um, test. And I'm not even sure how they would, if they would be able to get DNA from a sample that old. So I'm not sure how that would work. And just to to finish up, the coprolites also revealed that the Neanderthals at El Salt apparently had parasites like hookworms and pinworms, similar to the ones that now afflict modern populations and other ancient populations. And so um, Sistiaga commented that with as many parasites as they saw in the samples, the Neanderthals who left them 50,000 years ago would have been actually quite sick. Yeah. And so in a article published in Parasites and Vectors, uh, some epidemiologists uh, took a look at these studies, these coprolite studies, um, and uh, they've got some hot takes on archaeological parasitology. Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, it seems that, that so they, it's, um, it's an interesting article that kind of takes you through the the intellectual history, I guess, of of studying archaeological parasites, and and so it seemed that huh. in the earlier years um, there were a lot of prevalence studies, so very first wave where they're like, oh, this poo's got parasites in it, uh, and a lot of them, and so just this data of of prevalence and existence sparked interest mm-hmm. from an epidemiological angle, and so now. Uh, in in recent years, there's this there's a movement towards paleoepidemiology. So this idea of like, well, is this infection or is, yeah, that's what I was wondering with infection? the Neanderthals because right. um, there are plenty of things in our tummies that don't make us sick. Which is which is why if you travel to another part of the world, um, the water might make you sick, but it doesn't make people who live there sick. Because right. there are things that that cause illnesses that some populations are not affected by, and so uh, there sort of is since and this is also part of it just being a new a new subdiscipline of so it's very cool that you have people from um, more medically inclined uh, disciplines chiming in and and having 
um, getting involved in the conversation so that we're, yeah, we're not really just cool. out here being like, oh, my God, they had one million parasites. They how did they survive to adulthood? And, and a paleoepidemiologist can be like, oh, OK, this makes sense. Like this, like that it's something that, yeah. that you aren't sort of overstating and conversely not understating the, the existence. Um, but let's take a step back, way, way back, um, not so far back as to warrant a visit to the Puseum. <laughs> which i found we must go immediately yeah and so that's a website dedicated to fossilized dinosaur poop um which good job getting that internet no well no good job getting that that domain oh yeah i hope they paid for it in perpetuity um com. yeah with the z <laughs> oh yeah uh, but I'll include that in the show notes for folks to to follow that garden path. Uh, My God. But coprolite studies can illuminate aspects of human evolution, not just diet and tummy health of past populations. Um, oh, yeah. So, And I've got two examples of this. Uh, one is from an article published in Techniques and Coloproctology. God, the, the very niche journals I that know. we find in this research is just a constant yeah. source of joy but uh yeah thank you for your service the folks that that edit absolutely and submit to that but an italian research team put forth a hypothesis and i'm going to quote them here we put forward the hypothesis which is very difficult to prove <laughs> that this rigid <laughs> now, hang on <laughs> That this rigid control of defecation may have evolved not only due to social amenities, but as an evolutionary advantage. So this is... Now tell me more about this rigid control of defecation. Yeah, so this, this entire piece is about how maybe we need to think more about the fact that most people for most of their life have total agency over when and where they defecate. And in an absolutely incredible display of jargon and action. Yeah, I um, would like to take this opportunity to just tip my hat to you because I looked at the paragraph that you quoted. Boy, that's terrible. Yeah. So actually, I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and read it, and then you all can pause. Everybody can pause the the show, and then write down what they think that means. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're so gonna do a magic trick yeah. where we predict what you have written down. So the writer, the authors say, evaluation of fecal odograms by complex gas chromatographic and mass spectrometric analysis of both ancient and recent human fecal samples has revealed that human feces are rich in volatile co compounds. Everybody press pause and write down what you think that means. Um, okay, you're back. Wait, 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 wait. What do you think that means? But also, I think it means that I need to start a company called Fecal Odograms. <laughs> That's like the opposite of singing telegrams. Oh no, like that one exists and that's just a flaming bag of poop. Oh. Like that's <laughs> Dang. Missed that boat. But Okay, what what does it mean? It what does it mean? It means that human feces is quite smelly. Huh. Science. <laughs> um I mean, but but they're sharing this with us to the end that it would be very easily detected by predators and by prey. But like let's say like you are taking a walk outside in the woods or in your yard. Um, and you see deer poo, you wouldn't necessarily smell it before you see it. Whereas if there were human poo in your yard, you would probably smell it before you see it. And that's with like, our like simple, basic dum-dum noses. Like imagine like if you're a predator, <laughs> it would be advantageous for our ancestors to not just like poop wherever, 
because you don't want to have your, you know, where you're sleeping or where you're living, you don't want that to be tipped off to predators. Likewise, you don't want things that you want to hunt to know that there's a human around because they could smell your poop. Like, so it makes sense. Um, yeah, totally. And so paleoanthropological excavations suggest that our hominid ex- ancestors, the excavations that they that these researchers point to is of uh, Australopithecus boisei. Um, yeah. And so there is evidence from those excavations that they exercised control over where they defecated. So that's that's good. That's cool. That That's something that's been happening for a while. And it would be advantageous to do so, both to hide from things that wanted to eat you and not to scare off the things that you wanted to eat. In conclusion to this hypothesis that they said from the beginning <laughs> it's a very difficult hypothesis to prove so they don't bother trying <laughs> they just say uh, we hypothesize that the voluntary control of defecation by our ancestors together with greater vo- brain volume erect stature opposable thumbs and other changes may have contributed to the successful march of hominids along the road of evolution so it's really with like specific pit stops along the way yeah so it's really like the old saying goes he who poops in secret doesn't scare off dinner who says that <laughs> You never heard Nobody that? says that. <laughs> I don't live in Appalachia, so I don't know no, what kind of folksy stuff you come up with. We don't say that. I know. Nobody says that. No. Elsewhere, says well, that. probably Australopithecus Boisier said it. Oh, a note there. Um, they didn't talk. No, they had no <laughs> hyoid bone. <laughs> I think they had a hyoid. Oh. <laughs> but no, that's not what I was going to say. Just that that's one of the ones that has that Australopith Paranthropus debate it's one of those species since we did just cover this right yeah i do no, want to put in a note for our our listeners not to confuse them but this is it's paranthropus boise but they are australopiths okay please continue okay well um elsewhere um we have we, we've discussed previously that human in human poo uh from the american southwest has been used as evidence of cannibalism do you remember that I do from from man corn, yeah, the human there was, myoglobin. Yeah, right. And so um, it's it would have that um, those fibers ex- are in the heart in the human heart, so they would have had to be consumed because they didn't just like fall out of your heart into your tummy. Um, but <laughs> the floor fell out. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but what about humans and other poos? What, what what about them? Okay, <laughs> sorry, I didn't, I didn't know I needed to be. I mean, now I'm the number two. Oh, geez. So, speaking of two, 200,000 years ago, Africa. Well, do, I, do you want me to like insert a musical sting no, there? No, I, okay. 200,000 years ago in Africa, a hyena pooped. <laughs> um, that's, that's the only oh, way. Oh, God, I, you're a great storyteller. <laughs> so, this coprolite is, I really did, I really, uh, one could say, I pooped, pooped the, the bed. bed. Yeah. <laughs> On on writing this segment. Okay. 200,000 years ago in Africa, a brown hyena pooped. Fast forward. That hyena latrine, which is a term they use throughout the article, which is something. It makes um, it sound like they're going into that little building with the moon on the door. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. And like when they leave, they like, there's like a person there being like, here's a towel. So, Hot towel, sir. <laughs> like, and on the other end of that, you have to like pay a small fee to the lady outside to give you toilet paper. There, this copper light is part of a hyena latrine, which is preserved in a calcified cave sediment. 
dated between 195,000 and 257,000 years ago. Um, so old. It's very old, and it is in Gladys Vale. It sounds so wholesome. Yeah, and uh, so Gladysville Cave is approximately 13 kilometers north-northeast of the Sterkfontein Caves. Mm, up there. I've heard of in, them. Yeah. And so uh this the so this is where there are lots of lots of fauna, lots of ancestral fauna, including Australopithecus africanus. Heard of them. So this is a this is interesting. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> So it, it would make sense that there could be human hair in hyena feces because we have contemporary evidence for that because um, hyenas are scavenger animals and right. it seems that they totally. have a rather um, unpleasant knack for scavenging recent burials. They're I mean, unpleasant to us. It's great for them. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, you know, this is a podcast for humans, not a podcast for hyenas. So Right. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, my schedule's all messed up. Pardon I'm recording my, my hyena pardon, podcast I'm, tomorrow. I'm not apologizing for my bias there. Um, <laughs> and and so there is there have there has been found human hair and hyena feces. So we know what that looks like. Uh, there's no DNA preservation, so they couldn't identify specifically what species of mammal it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost went on to clarify that they knew it was from mammal. Uh, mammals are the ones oh, that hair. have hair. Yep. Um, but examination of uh, under um, scanning electron microscopy, um, led researchers to believe that it was definitely primate, almost definitely human. And if you want to look at tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of really close up photos of hair, um, get the knock yourself out to this this <laughs> article. Um, but based on the size and the general shape of the Gladys Vale fossil latrine, the dimensions and the morphology of the coprolites themselves. And the fact that they've got traces of hair in them, researchers definitely like they felt very, very confident that this was um, a, you know, a brown hyena, and which like they do that they to this day they have a very like two hundred thousand years of hyenas pooping in caves. Well, so I guess it actually is kind of a latrine. They have little restrooms. Yeah. Aw, yeah, well, that's nice for them. And so they go on to say that, you know, given that there are these hyena dens, hyena poop dens and in caves, and given that there are um, lots of findings of hominid remains, fossilized hominid bones in caves. In this area. Same, same. And so the discovery of human hair in hyena poo leads them to think that perhaps the reason why one of the reasons why you find these concentrations of um, hominid remains in this region in caves is because they were scavenged by paleo hyenas. Right. And that might be the reason why you find such scattered bits because the hyena doesn't necessarily take the whole burial with them. They might just drag off what they can carry. Yeah, and so it's it's not only a great lens into who was kicking around in that period um, and, like, what the environment looked like for hominins, but also um, it's really helpful to kind of figure out what might not be the reason why. Like, are these were these deliberately thrown into caves, like the Heidelbergensis folks? Probs not. <laughs> Probs not, indeed. 
So let's 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 come back to America. Yeah, let's. And before we get into that, hey, do you like the idea of a sponsored episode? Do you want an episode of your own? That can be a reality. You can just go to thedirtpod.com and click on the news section and click on the I want an episode button. And you can have one for your very own of a topic of your choice. Okay, just putting that out there. So, Pope from Cahokia. So the Cahokia Mounds in Illinois are the largest pre-Columbian settlement built north of the Rio Grande. Which you can't really say without kind of a twang. North of the Rio Grande. Anyway, we're not exactly sure, we as in archaeologists, uh, exactly the number of people that lived in Cahokia. But estimates suggest that as many as 20,000 people may have lived among the hundreds of houses and huge plazas, including a plaza the size of 45 football fields, which is sort of unfathomable to me, not just because I don't know how big a football field is, but just like, it seems very, very big. Yeah. I really want to go like, to, I want to go to Cahokia. Developing agoraphobia, just thinking about it. <laughs> okay. Well, focus on, well, focus on the poop, I guess. And this is, this is around 1000 CE. But then for reasons not entirely understood, the people that built these massive earthen structures disappeared. And by 1350 CE, the region was mostly abandoned. So what happened to these people? Sometimes it can be very, very difficult to understand population histories in archaeology because material culture, the, the stuff that they left behind, the physical objects, can only tell us so much. And looking at populations that are current in an area doesn't really tell us anything about populations that may have been there in the deep past. So researchers can survey domestic architecture and estimate the number of people in houses or look at things like the density of artifacts or even count burials if there are cemeteries. But these methods are what are called proxy measurements that rely on estimation. So what scientists really need is a compound left behind by humans living on the landscape something that could reflect the size of the population as it rose and fell. Something like a special molecule found in human poop. It's another biomarker. This biomarker is the subject of a recent paper published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, and the researchers looked at the effectiveness of measuring coprostanol. I'm not sure if the emphasis is on the right syllable there. It could be coprostanol but I like caprostanol, which is a molecule of partially digested cholesterol produced in the human gut. They were looking at caprostanol and testing it as a way to measure the changing population of Cahokia, and it worked out. So the amount of caprostanol extracted from sediment core, so they, they put a, a core, like kind of like an apple core, basically a tube, into the ground and extracted, you extract a core of material from the ground, and the amount extracted from sediment cores taken uh, from the nearby lake very, very closely tracked with the population trends indicated by the archaeological record. Elizabeth Arkush, who is an archaeologist at the University of Pittsburgh, calls the results from Cahokia really promising. And it's a good sign for her own research because she is uh, in an ongoing project using the same fecal markers to track population changes in Peru. So the really cool thing about this working out at Cahokia is that it's a proof of concept for estimating population sizes with this compound in temperate environments. Um, it's not the first time that human fecal biomarkers were used for population studies ever, um, but they've been done in places like Norway where cold temperature helps to pre preserve the, the compounds. And so 
um, the researchers were very, very pleased to find that molecules from Cahokia, where temperatures, you know, it's Illinois, temperatures get much higher than Norway, they were well-preserved enough to estimate the number of people living in the city hundreds of years ago. One of the researchers says, I don't see this as something which will replace former methods of estimating population, but rather can supplement our knowledge in a new way where traditional methods can't. There are uh, a few problems with the technique still that need to be worked out. For one thing, caprostanol doesn't degrade at a consistent rate, so it doesn't have it doesn't have a half-life like radioactive hmm. elements do, uh, as far as scientists can tell. Also, the amount of caprostanol in an individual human depends on their diet. Also, the influence of diet on how this molecule is produced isn't totally clear. And so this, this same researcher said... If someone wanted to just eat meat for a month and then do some gross laboratory stuff and then eat tofu for a month and do some more gross laboratory stuff, it'd be very productive. But I don't know if the lab manager would be very happy if I proposed it. Probably true, sir. <laughs> Elsewhere in the Americas, um, a 2014 study published in PLOS One. It seems like PLOS One in 2014 was the, the place for poop. Was this a special issue? <laughs> special uh, issue uh, <laughs> oh, um, more like plops one hmm. <laughs> so the study was able to solve or at least get much closer to solving a mystery regarding two indigenous societies that coexisted on Vieques Island which is off the coast of Puerto Rico um, for they were there coexisting for a little more than a millennium at the start of the common era. So from about 5 CE to a, about 1170 CE. And, oh, okay. That's uh, quite a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, coexisting. So just like we're neighbors. Um, yeah, yeah. And so there's been a de – because they coexisted in a place for about a 1,000 years, there's been a debate for years among archaeologists regarding whether the these two cultures, which are called the Salatoid and Hoekoid, uh, whether they were part of the same population on Vieques or if the Huecoid population came from what is today Bolivia and the Salatoid group originally came from what's now Venezuela. So were they the same or were they from separate places and just happened to settle Vieques and coexist peacefully? So peacefully that they ultimately coalesced to form the Tainos, whom we discussed back around episode 17. Um, and the Tainos are the folks that were living... Uh, there on the island with Columbus showed up. This study was able to extract DNA from the cores of the coprolites. So if you you'd want to get it from the core because it, that's what's least likely to be affected by microbes and things. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the fact that they were able to do it all is kind of amazing because when you consider the climate of Puerto Rico, that it's hot and humid. Yeah. And that's super old poo. Well, the, the Maillard reaction, maybe maybe the sugar coating helped. Yeah, it, I, it would have to. But from that analysis, the research team was able to show like each of the cultures can be distinguished from one another on the base of um, the microbiomes and their tummies, like both the bacterial and fungal gut bi microbiomes. So not only. Interesting. Yeah. So not only the tummy biomes, uh, but they also <laughs> were able to show that parasite loads were heavy and culturally distinct. Hoekoid coprolites were characterized by maize and basidiomycota uh, sequences. And so basidiomycota includes mushrooms, um, chanterelles, um, oh. and um, human pathogenic yeast cryptococcus. Why did you say it like that? Because it's terrifying sounding. But so okay. um, 
uh, Basidiomycota is one of the major groups of of fungi, but that's what includes mushrooms. So they ate a lot of of corn and mushrooms, and that suggests that these were important components in their diet. However, uh, on the other hand, salatoid coprolite samples harbored sequences associated with fish parasites, which suggests that raw fish was a substantial component of their diet. Well, (laughs) paleo ceviche. So this idea of parasite loads were heavy but culturally distinct the the folks the the hoikoid folks um they didn't have the fish parasites so they weren't eating right. raw fish either they were not eating fish or they were uh preparing their fish in a way that involved cooking it and and thus killing those parasites so this distinction between what they're eating how they're eating it and and also just the microbiome of their stomachs, it further supports the hypothesis that the two ancient cultures were distinct and that they retained distinct technological and cultural differences, even though they were together in like very close proximity and peaceful coexistence for a millennium. Um, it, it does give a little bit more credence to the idea that they came from two different places. They came from two different places with their two different tummies and um, they're two different sets of, of life ways and just happen and to be food neighbors. ways. Yeah. Isn't that cool? That is so cool. And I also, I don't, I don't know how I feel about the idea that, I guess it's my own perspective that it seems like the researchers felt like they had to do the study because the idea that two very different populations could coexist nicely on the same island together. It was just like yeah, and, unfathomable. Yeah. So like, there, that can't be there right. Are these theories that like, obviously they had to be the same people and I'm not sure what the, what these sources are, but they talk about how one of the groups is very like outgoing and peaceful. And the other one is more taciturn and they're like all like lapidary carvers and things and i'm like where are you getting this it was a thousand years ago um so (laughs) that's why i left that part out but they have these like very different um sort of narratives about how they live their lives but they're in the same place and so so interesting so it's this idea of like well were they the same is this like a caste system like what's going on but it's actually because often when you are unfortunately um often when you're looking at prehistoric populations that are lesser studied, either because this is the beginning of the discipline or whatever, you're kind of assigning cultures based on their material culture. And so one of these groups had like soft stone, like carved soft stone objects, and another one had pottery. And it's like, here are two cultures. And it's like, well, what does that actually mean? But if you do a study like this, you can actually tell the human beings and you can get a better sense of what their lives looked like just from looking at their poos. <laughs> so why don't you tell me about what life was like for some other people that pooed? I'm about to tell you quite the story. Some of it you may have heard already in history class. So in 1804, Captain Meriwether Lewis and Second Lieutenant William Clark set out on an expedition to check out the United States' shiny new territory acquired in the Louisiana Purchase. Given that the Corps of Discovery Expedition's food supplies largely consisted of strips of dried animal meat, another important thing that was part of the men's rations were laxatives. This is terrible. We've only just started. I know. Calomel was the wonder drug of the age. In large doses, it functioned as a, and I'm directly quoting from the article I pulled this from, a savage purgative. Been there. Causing, yeah, same. Did I ever tell you about the time that I finally accepted that maybe... 
expiration dates aren't just a government suggestion. Yeah. That happened. Oh boy. Like four years ago. <laughs> this that's the thing that came to mind when I saw the word savage purgative. You don't even need to tell the story. I can fill in the blanks. Yeah. And so can our listeners. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> It functioned as a savage purgative, this calomel, causing lengthy and productive sessions in the outhouse, guaranteeing the restoration of one's bile balance. Still thinking about those four humors in 1804. Also, in small doses, it was thought to be effective against syphilis. Well, I mean, but, like, if you are, like, pooping your brains out, it's, like, hard to... Acquire like, syphilis. Put, put oneself in a position of getting syphilis. But take too much of it, and your teeth would fall out and you might die because calomel's modern scientific name is mercury chloride. So when the core of discovery left the East Coast, Lewis and Clark brought with them several pounds of mercury chloride in the form of dozens and dozens of hefty white tablets labeled Dr. Rush's Bilious Pills. I hate this. And these pills, these pills were almost 50% calomel, and they were big, at least four times the size of an aspirin tablet. What, what's the other percent? What else is it? Not mercury. Sucralose. Or probably like <laughs> chalk. Yeah. Like probably whatever the, the binding element is. Yeah. The pill's inventor, Dr. Benjamin Rush, was America's most prominent colonial physician. <laughs> a signer of the Declaration of Independence, oh. and a personal friend of then-President Thomas Jefferson. Oh, boy. I still haven't His... heard anything I don't hate yet. <laughs> You're not going to. His star had fallen considerably after the heroic style of medicine he favored, which featured heavy purging and copious bloodletting, which had a noticeably bad effect on his patient's survival rate, uh, and this was during a yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia in 1793. Guess what? If someone has a fever... Bleeding them and well, making them puke a lot. Sounds like he made that yellow fever a red fever. Sure. Because of all the blood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I got it. But Dr. Benjamin Rush was still an important man at the time that Lewis and Clark left the East Coast. So enter the bilious pills. The men in the expedition called these thunderclappers. I hate this. And they were extraordinarily effective. And here's where it gets cool. They've proven effective for later generations as well for another reason. As it turns out, mercury chloride is only slightly soluble in human digestion, and much of it goes out with the resulting purge. Once in the earth, it lasts virtually forever without dissolving or breaking down. And so, as Lewis and Clark's men made their way across the continent, they were unknowingly depositing a trail of heavy metals along the way, a trail that historians and scientists have been able to detect and use to document almost their every <laughs> movement. So experts use this information to pinpoint the location of a Lewis and Clark campsite just south of modern-day Missoula, Montana. There, on the banks of Lolo Creek, that's such a cute name, Lolo Creek, they found mercury in an old latrine, not a hyena latrine. They well, yeah, because located... hyenas are smarter than to eat mercury. They just eat people. <laughs> uh, and the latrine was located the proper distance, as suggested in the military guidebook used by Lewis and Clark, oh. from an old puddle of melted lead and a fire-cracked rock, the campfire where someone likely repaired a weapon. So they were doing some old-fashioned sleuthing. The expedition leaders called the site Traveler's Rest. It's only one of the campsites to be identified. The others include more permanent forts and 
other places near Billings, Montana, where Clark carved his initials. Maurice Posley, a writer for the Chicago Tribune, reported in a 2005 story that a pamphlet from the state park um, in Montana mentions the latrine. Quote, The two men who hovered over this spot in 1806 probably did not feel so fortunate, but for the researchers and lovers of history, their misfortune is our triumph. Well, I hated all of that. That is how the West was won. Poopin'. Let's go somewhere else. <laughs> All right. How about we go to the edges of another empire? An important urban settlement in the Pisidia region of Asia Minor. That's that's uh, mostly today that's Turkey. Um, mm-hmm. In the Roman Empire yielded its stinky secrets. Um, when feces contaminated with roundworms and parasites uh, were discovered there by archaeologists uh, excavating a latrine in the Roman baths there. The bath complex that they excavated is quite large and had a communal latrine, a typical feature of Roman bathing establishments, um, and the sewage piping still was intact underground. Testing of the decomposed feces discovered... So... Decomposed feces that they had discovered in the pipes showed that it was human in origin and radiocarbon dating of charcoal fragments in the sewage placed it between the second to fifth centuries of the common era. So this is the Roman Empire. That is what happened Mm -hmm. in the second to fifth centuries of the common era. That Um, is what was going on. That was what was happening in this neighborhood. Um, So writing in the International Journal of Paleopathology, the results of five human fecal samples and four animal samples uh, were published. And, uh, and they were studied by a team at the University of Cambridge. So mm-hmm. five human samples, five positives for roundworm eggs. Congrats. Although the concentration of the eggs was not high, uh, roundworm wasn't found at all in the animal poos. Um, additionally, oh. one human sample tested positive for uh, giardia. Oh, yeah. Woof. And uh, that's a protozoal parasite that causes dysentery. And so the animal samples, no giardia. And, great. Um, yep, the animals are doing great. Uh, they got a clean bill of health here, although they are dead Well, since this was 1,700 years ago. Um, can't fix that. Yeah. So through additional testing, um, the uh, researcher Faith Williams and colleagues write that, Quote, the parasites we found in the human feces layer indicate genuine infection of the people who use the latrine and not contamination of the human layer by parasites that percolated downward from the herbivore layer, end quote. Okay. Percolated is a very effective word there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's this, this idea of everybody had roundworms. Uh, one person had Giardia. Um, mm-hmm. But all of those people that had roundworms could have been... Like, they could have been fine, like, totally right? healthy. Yeah, you just have roundworms. Yeah. Um, Can you have giardia and not be sick? I would guess that you could have like flare-ups, and I know this because a dog I know <laughs> had giardia and oh, and would pup. and would get better. And then um, she was still a baby, so she was developing immunity yeah. in her tummy. Um, and so it took a while to kick it completely. Huh. Um, so I would guess that that person, but, but man, if you have dysentery, why are you going to the public bath? Well, they didn't keep it to yourself. No. They didn't. They didn't know about that. I know. Just seems. It just seems like you'd want to stay home. 
So that's that. Yep. I'm, I'm done. There are, <laughs> there are so many other directions we could have gone with this topic. Like, like so many other directions. And we'll include links to other tangents and other projects and, and things on our show notes. And these are projects like the comedians Jason and Randy Sklar uh, made a documentary in which they interview a bunch of comedians about defecation in a very like art as catharsis move to tackle shame around pooping. Yeah. Um, and I kind of want to watch it. Yeah. I really want to know what Adam Carolla has to say about pooping. They put his oh, name near well. the top and I was just like, really? um, there's like the concept of the groom of the stool. God, one of my favorite which is things. Neither a groom nor a stool. Um, well, it is there is stool involved for sure. But that will just include the Wikipedia link list there because it's it's both a you can know the names of all of them. Yeah. And this, I mean, I feel like we should say this is an office that existed uh, in Renaissance type period, the Tudor period, uh, in and at least. England. I'm not sure about the rest of Europe, but it was a an office that uh, dealt with wiping the monarch's royal behind. It was a very sought after oh, position. But I, th- I thought could- that it actually wasn't about that. It was just a um, like a close advisor who like didn't necessarily am- come in contact with anybody's but but uh, but their own. I am pretty sure that there was poop involved well, in this job. It existed as a a figural position for a long time, but you can learn about it. Yep. But um, so like those are fun, all well and good. But there are also like more serious things that we could talk about. Uh, you know, there are plenty of like taboos around defecation. There are cultural norms around eating with one's right hand because the left is reserved for personal hygiene. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is a cultural norm in mathematically most of the world. But there are also um, taboos regarding open defecation versus latrines. There are a few things that will include, uh, including like a photography project um, and and also just coverage around how um, access to sanitation, stigma around use of latrine versus open defecation and like location, uh, like having a toilet in one's house versus like going away from the house um and because it's this combination it's sort of the intersection of lack of access and lack of desire to to yeah like gain access and there's also the people who are responsible for working in these latrines and, and spaces like there's the issues of class and status and treatment of sanitation workers which are all very pressing and have major impacts on communities and also like this isn't just an issue in the global south like there's these like the photography project and the national geographic article that will include talk a lot about sort of a more global sense so they look a lot at like sub-saharan africa and south asia and uh places that are sort of what comes to mind when one thinks about, I guess, the developing world. But sanitation is an issue in nearly every community, including yours, dear listener, uh, because think about um, homeless populations that are that either lack access to or denied access to toilets and clean drinking water. And like this is a public health issue for everyone. And also um, think about the fact that we have um, here in the U.S., we have not uncommon outbreaks of foodborne illness uh, with fresh produce. And um, 
those are frequently uh, caused by soiled clothing on farm workers and uh, poor sanitary conditions for farm workers because the people who work on farms are not are either not paid well enough to have housing that like has running water in it or they are denied access to proper sanitary facilities at their workplace and it affects you when you eat your lettuce and you have to go to the hospital so this is why this becomes becomes an issue of justice and like human rights Foodborne illnesses can be deadly to people with compromised immune yeah. systems, people who are very young, people who are elderly. It affects every single status level. Yeah. So it's a good thing to to be aware of. Yeah. Well, I killed the mood. Well, that really ran the gamut, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, we do have some shout outs. <laughs> so, shout out well, and shout I'm out, sorry. Shout out to all of you for making it to this point in the episode and thank you again to amanda for sponsoring it i mean i liked researching it no i had a great time researching it i just this is really like remember that time that i told you that i paid for spotify premium so i wouldn't have to hear any more toilet paper commercials like this is like (laughs) really peaking my like deep-seated baptist shame like having to like it's fine if you like read it and don't ever talk about it to anyone ever well maybe this is a good way to help you kind of work through it (laughs) Anyway, shout out also to our new Patreon supporters, Samantha and Laura. Thank you so much much. for your support. It means so much. It does. And thank you so much to all of you for listening. We will be back in your ears soon. And you can put us there via SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or the platform of your choosing. You can find The Dirt Podcast over on Facebook. And if you like us on Facebook, perhaps you would like to like our content like our content because (laughs) Facebook is trying to chase that paper. And if you organically interact with our content, other people will see it. So if you see our content, great. Engage with it because please. And thank you. We don't have an advertising budget. Not yet. On Twitter. We're at dirt podcast on Instagram. We're at the dirt pod. And that is all together at thedirtpod.com, as is ahem, the button that can get you an episode on the topic of your very own choosing. And if you have thoughts, comments, please don't send us pictures of poop, but you oh can God. send us things at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And you can support us on Patreon, like Samantha and Laura did. Yeah. Thanks, guys. You can become a monthly subscriber or a single-time donor. Either way, we would be extremely grateful, and that is over at patreon.com slash the Dirt Podcast. And if you want to dish out for the Dirt After Dark level, you can get the rest of our controversial, controversial turns out, episode on ancient aliens. Most people liked it. Seems everybody but one. Thank you to everybody for listening. We love you all. Bye. Bye.